Morning, church. It's a good day to be in the house of the Lord, always, amen? Amen. It was the year 2000. A young superstar basketball player by the name of Kobe Bryant had been with the Los Angeles Lakers for several years at this point. Much to the team's frustration, even with the likes of a big man by the name of Shaquille O'Neal, the Lakers were without a championship for several years. Kobe Bryant was an elite basketball player, yet he also struggled with selfishness. In some respects, he was a fierce, intense competitor. He wanted the ball in his hands for every shot. And on some level, I'm sure we would agree, when it comes to a star player, that's the mentality you want. Nevertheless, the best of the best in any area of life need to come to a realization that they can't do it on their own. They need others. As for Kobe Bryant in that year 2000, it was actually as he drove into the lane of the Western Conference Finals and and gave up an alley-oop pass to Shaquille O'Neal. It was that moment that seemed to be the beginning of a transformation for him mentally and how he approached the game. That game would end up propelling them to the, the finals of the NBA and a championship which would be the first of three together for them. Kobe had come to a point to where he understood he needed at times to let go of the ball, not just to be a scorer but a facilitator. That said, why do I begin with an illustration with the Los Angeles Lakers, which is, I have to admit, my favorite NBA basketball team? There's another reason why I begin with this illustration. For some of us, we live our Christian walk similar to the way Kobe Bryant played his basketball game before coming to this epiphany, if you will. We live our lives as if We're alone on the court of life. Now, this in no way subtracts from our human responsibility to take shots. Amen? We've been called, if I continue the basketball analogy, to take shots, to live for Christ. To do so with conviction and confidence, too, as well. Nevertheless, spiritually speaking, do we also understand our utter need for the ultimate alpha, I'll say, on the court, if you will, to relinquish control, to follow his game plan? When it came to the Lakers' game plan, Coach Phil Jackson, Jackson, had the triangle offense down to perfection. All the players on that team understood their need for each other to play collectively. When it comes to a spiritual game plan, Scripture is full of specific models or game plans, if you will, for how we live our Christian life. Lives, models that, if we're honest, all of us challenge us to as well. Because unfortunately, in our flesh, we desire control. We desire to be the alpha, if you will, maybe some more than others. But on some level, we all desire control of circumstances or whatever we're going through. Today, as many of you are already aware, We're going to pause our series in the book of Ephesians. And I want us to take the next two weeks 
to look at a model for prayer that our Lord Jesus Christ communicates in the Sermon on the Mount. I want us to sit at the master's feet. I want us to learn from the master coach, if you will, when it comes to a game plan, when it comes to a model for prayer. Contextually, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus had been speaking about so-called hypocrites. Whether it's in giving or in prayer, these men desired for the world to see them. They wanted to be the ones in control or in charge from an illustrative standpoint as he communicates this sermon. These men wanted to stand on the street corners and in the synagogues or proclaim with a trumpet their own credibility. Jesus would go on to say they have their reward. And none of us would desire that. These men are completely self-absorbed in themselves. Nonetheless, there's a model that Christ communicates in Matthew chapter 6. A model for prayer where the reward is one of blessing. A model that's ultimately first and foremost concerned with the glory of God. And secondly, yes, as we'll see more next week, provision. Yet, as we will see more, and a little bit here today, a provision that is not necessarily about self, but a collective provision. Throughout the church, and the history of the church, many have looked to this Lord's Prayer, if you want to call it that. I've titled this message, The Lord's Prayer. In all reality, it, it's, it's more of the disciples' prayer. Because we all know that Jesus would never, has nothing to ask forgiveness of sin from, which we see in the second half of the prayer. Throughout this history, and throughout church history of sorts, men and women have looked at this prayer as, as something that would not necessarily be a model, but a what to say, I'll call it, as compared to a how to pray. It's a model. It's not a prescription. And we see this even within the context as right prior to Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, Jesus speaks of the hypocrites that pray in meaningless repetition. This becomes abundantly clear in what he's trying to communicate. A model of how, how to pray, not what to pray. And within this model, we, we have in, in all actuality, and it's just amazing in and of itself, one central and timeless theme. And that is that prayer is first about the glory of God and second, provision. And I'm convinced, beloved, and this is just stirred up in me throughout this week in preparation for this, that this understanding of what on the surface many times seems so simple. Many of us have repeated these words for much of our life. But I'm convinced that if we really take the time to unpack what Christ is saying here, that this is a paramount opportunity for us to grow in our understanding of our dependence and need for Christ. I've mentioned this in previous weeks, but this in and of itself is the best application you will ever hear from any preacher the rest of your life. Bigger God, lower view of man, dependence and need will drive you like nothing else, even in prayer. And moreover, it's this type of prayer that inevitably paves the way for not a championship ring, as 
the Lakers would have had or NFL teams or whatever you would look to use as an example, but a championship, and I'll just call it a crown. One that is fashioned with gold, silver, and precious stones as opposed to hay and straw. One in which when you face the judgment seat of Christ as a born-again believer, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And you will be rewarded based upon your faithful service unto him. With that said, this morning I want us to answer the question, how can we first glorify the Lord in prayer? How can we first glorify the Lord in prayer? So I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. The title, as I mentioned, of today's message is The Lord's Prayer, part one. We'll look at the part two next week in the second section, though. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 and 10 is our text. Pray then in this way. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You may be seated. Now, if you're taking notes, which I would encourage you to do so, I think it is helpful. We're going to look at four concentrations from these two verses that will once again answer that question, how can we first glorify the Lord in prayer? So with that said, our first concentration is number one, his authority, his authority. Look with me at the first part of verse nine. He says, pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven. Now, when you think of an authority figure that you respect and admire in any area of life, we're all in those circumstances in a position to where we desire to heed their commands. Going back to that Lakers team. I love the story that is told by Shaquille O'Neal when he met Coach Jackson for the first time. He traveled to his resort in Montana in the middle of the woods. And as Shaquille O'Neal went to go see Coach Jackson, the coach looked at him. And some of the first words that he said is he said, hey, Big man, I need you to move that log out of my lake. Now, in some respects, Shaq would go on to say that this was a strange introduction to this relationship. But he understood on some level that Coach Jackson, Jackson was challenging him. He wanted to see how he was going to respond, this alpha male player, indeed to who would be his authority figure. Now Shaq would obviously go on to respond well and move the log out of the lake. He understood the authority and the experience and the respect that Coach Jackson brought to the table as a former NBA champion with the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan for Many, many years. He understood if he wanted a championship, he needed to listen to the one with experience and authority. As for us, do we do the same from a natural perspective? Of course we do. Whether it's in a job, whether it's in sport, whether it's even someone in our lives that has a skill set that we need. Maybe it's Jeff or maybe it's Daryl that tells us what we need concerning our cars. We should listen 
If we don't listen, typically that will spell trouble in some capacity because those men speak with authority and demand respect concerning these areas that we need help with. Yet, why is it at times when it comes to prayer, from a general perspective, the believers look at it as secondary when the ultimate, supreme authority, the Lord Jesus Christ, commands us to pray and to do so consistently. That's the force, even within the original language. When tempted to take prayer lightly, we'd be wise to remember the authority of the one who commands us to do so. Now, let me point out one other significant element for us to consider here. Look again at verses 9 and 10. As you're looking, I want you to do me a favor. If you don't have a pen, you can just look with your eyes. But I want you to underline in verses 9 and 10 every single first person pronoun that you see. For example, I, me, my, or mine. I'll give you a second to do that. Right away, you're seeing that's not a fair request, is it? There are none. There are none. As a matter of fact, throughout this entire prayer, the emphasis is upon the Lord, and as I mentioned, a collective emphasis. A collective emphasis, that is, which is the church. Now, does this mean that we don't pray for ourselves? You know the answer to that. Of course not. We see this throughout Scripture. Nonetheless, is that our primary focus? Is that how we always approach the Lord first and foremost? Concerning self? If that's the case, beloved, we're going to end up missing the game plan, if you will. With that said, what about these two words? Our Father. It could very simply be passed over without much thought. I don't want us to miss this collective intimacy here. Our Father. For believers, we must never forget our relationship with God as His children. Children who delight in making their requests known to God. What's more, an understanding that God the Father delights in answering those requests. He's our Father. That intimacy is key. With that, it helps us to approach Him with boldness, with confidence, and the same way that you would approach your earthly father. Those of you that have a strong and intimate and good relationship with Him. Nevertheless, as with any good father and child relationship, there's also an acknowledgement of authority, is there not? In this portion of this prayer, we begin to see this. Even with those words, our Father, and this next phrase, which I love, communicates so much, who is in heaven. Once again, something that could easily be passed over. But there's so much here. Think about it from this perspective. We all at times, when we pray, are tempted to focus too much on our circumstances. And I would argue on some level, that's a good thing. We see this throughout the Psalter especially. As godly men pour out their heart in a prayer of vulnerability or transparency. 
which in turn drives them to look more to Christ. That's an intimate relationship to be able to do so. Be that as it may, Jesus is teaching something more here. Something regarding a model for how we initially approach our Father who is in heaven. Remember our question for this morning. How do we first glorify the Lord in prayer? His simple command to pray is one aspect of concentrating on his authority. Yet the same goes for his position, which is in heaven. Know this, beloved. The Lord reigns. He is in heaven. He sees the entire court of your life. He knows the retirement years after your game of life. He knows the last day of your life. Psalm 115, verse 3, one of my favorite psalms, reads, But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Psalm 123, verse 1, reads, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. So, my friends, when we approach the Lord in prayer, know this, and know this first and foremost, that the one who is good, that the one who is sovereign, and the one that is majestically enthroned in heaven, Nothing is outside of his control or his authority. This inevitably reminds us to give up the ball, if you will. To relinquish control. We asked the question last week, I'll ask it again. For some of us here today, what do you need to let go of? What are you holding too tightly to? It's a model such as this that reminds us, as we stated last week again, that you and I, are simply stewards of what God has given us for a while to serve others. Paraphrasing that quote from last week from Pastor John MacArthur. Now let me give you another point of application from the words of King Jehoshaphat. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 6, these are words of prayer concentrated in the authority of God. Listen to these words. And he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand so that no one can stand against you. Hallelujah. That's the God in whom we come before and pray. My friends, no matter what you're in the midst of, trial or blessing, the Lord reigns, and no one stands against him. Amen? 
That's an application that would serve us all well when we pray in this way. With that said, let's turn our attention to the second concentration of this prayer. And that's number two. His holiness. His holiness. Look again at the second half of verse 9. Very familiar phrase. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Now we need to deal with this, this term hallowed. Obviously not a, a common term in, in our language of the day. Why is it translated in this manner? It's only used one other time, and that is the correlating account of the Lord's Prayer in the Gospel of Luke. The word at its core means to sanctify or to be holy. So this begs the question, why not? Use the word sanctify or holy. Well, we won't spend the time behind the scenes, but the answer is grammatical. And that said, at the end of the day, this is so much more that Christ is communicating here. He's in essence saying, cause your name to be vindicated or defended or cause your name to be treated as holy. And what's more, even the, the use of this word name conveys so much more than an English interpretation of how we would say name. It's more than just the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. From a Jewish perspective, this entails all of his character and all of his nature. It's about his holiness. It's about a prayer that desires the Lord to produce reverence for who he is. Now, we'll see this in the next concentration as well. But the sense here is twofold concerning this part of the prayer. Hallowed be your name. It's twofold in the sense that it's definitely speaking to a current or present context. Yet it is also speaking from an end times perspective. Theologians would call it an eschatological perspective. That said, when it comes to the current or today perspective, as believers, we all want more than anything and desire, especially within the culture, that Christ's name would be revered and respected as holy, that he would cause it to be vindicated. Given this day and age, Proverbs chapter 14 comes up all the time, and rightfully so. When the word of God says that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. This would be our prayer and a worthwhile implication and application of hallowed be your name. What about his holiness in the church? While the church of our day prays for more ideas of how to be more relevant, more accepted, more attractive. We pray, Lord, vindicate your name as holy. We pray, Hallowed be your name. Cause your name to be treated as holy and revered. Yes, in the culture, but within the church as well. Amen? Oh, but wait. Some may say, oh, but Pastor John, isn't that going to hurt church growth? 
to this we respond? You better believe it. The Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 20, reads, For everyone who does evil, everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest their works be exposed. Friends, a prayer that prays, Hallowed be your name, will inevitably stunt And here's the key word, so-called church growth. Oh, but you see, here's why this model for prayer is truly the game plan for real church growth. In the very next verse of the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 21, we read, But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested, here's the key, as having been wrought by God, birthed from God. This is what we want today, my friends, is it not? A church the Lord causes by His choice to be royal and holy. Hallowed be Your name, O God. A people for His own possession who've been called out of darkness and called to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Now, I mentioned that an end time concentration is a part of this prayer as well. When it comes to His holiness, there will certainly be a day from an end times perspective, an eschatological perspective, where purity and holiness will glisten like a crystal clear mountain stream on a sunny day. And that's the time which brings us to the third concentration behind how we first glorify the Lord in prayer. And that's number three, His kingdom. His kingdom. Look at the beginning of verse 10. You know the words. Your kingdom come. Oh, how encouraging are words such as this in light of the depravity in which we live today. Super encouraging. Nonetheless, can I challenge you again? If we were able to view your prayer life, how much of it would be concerned with your kingdom? How much of it would be concerned with your kingdom of work, your kingdom of health, your kingdom of suffering? Your kingdom of decisions. And yet Jesus says, pray in this way, your kingdom come. Not ours, but his. Because we, as we approach him, desire to glorify him first and foremost. That's the game plan, beloved. That's the model. Which in all reality, and I know precious saints in this room that have been there, when we pray in this way, the things of this day slowly seem to fade away. Not making any light of the significance of these 
trials or decisions or health circumstances? Are you at times discouraged at the lack of respect for his authority? Are you at times discouraged at the lack of his holiness? When is the last time you prayed, your kingdom come? Your kingdom come. Praying and living with an eternal significance certainly strengthens and empowers and equips us to know that one day all will be made right. Oh, by the way, the hope in this is not a fleeting hope, but a guaranteed, signed, sealed, delivered, etched in stone promise from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The Apostle John proclaimed this vision of promise as such in Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 and 6. As we consider this end times perspective in His kingdom and our model for how we approach the Lord, we read, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them, and they came to life and reigned with Christ, For a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Praise the Lord. This is something to be excited about. Amen. Have a smile on our face no matter what circumstance you're in the midst of. Your kingdom come, O God. This is something that can shape our prayer life. This is something that serves as the brightest lighthouse in the midst of perilous, dark, cultural waves of turbulence. What's more, that lighthouse is not just a beacon of hope for the future. It's a beacon of direction to navigate the jagged rocks of the ocean in which we swim. To navigate towards direction for the present when we say, your kingdom come. When we pray this, there's surely a concentration on the future, yet there's also a focus on the present. We see this in the beginning, even and throughout the Gospels, the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Is at hand. This is what we see all throughout the Gospels. There is, once again, a dual sense of the kingdom, present and future. That's to say that a real and literal millennial kingdom is coming with Christ at his second coming. Your kingdom come. What's more, when Jesus came the first time, he said, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then uh, for us now, spiritually speaking, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So then, pastor, what does that mean? 
The kingdom of heaven is at hand. I understand that the millennial kingdom is coming and I can pray in this manner. But what does that look like for me now when I pray your kingdom come? I'm glad you asked. It's all about a prayer that desires Christ to be glorified throughout the hearts and lives of his people today. A prayer that desires men and women to honor and respect his authority. To manifest his holiness and to live in light of his kingdom. It's a prayer for the salvation and the sanctification of souls. Think about that, beloved, as we evaluate our own prayer lives. It's a prayer that first glorifies the Lord through a desire to see his sovereign will come to fruition. And that's our final concentration in this first section of the Lord's Prayer. And that's number four. His will. His will. Look with me at the end of verse 10. He says, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what we desire, is it not? Christ in His Humanity demonstrated this type of submission to the will of the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he prayed, not my will, but your will be done. That said, let me challenge you again from what I previously mentioned. How often are we praying for our will? Previously, we, we called it our, our will or our kingdom of work or our, our kingdom of decisions. Once again, in order that there's no misunderstanding, does this mean that we can't pray in a way that desires the, the good and acceptable will of God in, in our decisions and in our life? Of course not. Jesus in his humanity demonstrated this as well. When he desired that this cup of suffering might pass. Nonetheless, in his deity, he understood the sovereign significance and submission to your will be done. Now, concerning this will, it's important to note whether on earth or in heaven, This comprises two types of God's will that we see throughout Scripture. One, which is called His preceptive will. His preceptive will. At the end of this sermon, we see an example of this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. When Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. What is the preceptive will of God? It is the revealed word of God within the 66 books of the completed canon of Scripture. When we pray, your will be done, and we know exactly what His will is from His preceptive revealed will, will, what do we do? We do it. We should. By God's grace. However, this will also includes what's called His will of decree. His will of decree. And there's many passages of Scripture we could point to. I'll share just one with you. Isaiah 46, verse 10. is a perfect example of this. When we read, declaring the end from the beginning. 
and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all for my good pleasure. From the beginning to the end, nothing will thwart God's will of decree. So, is this your model and game plan, so to speak, when you pray? Do you desire to give up the ball, to relinquish control, and to pray, Oh God, your will be done. Once again, if it's clearly revealed in the scriptures, let's be obedient. Yet also, when we pray, oh God, your will be done, we fall in love with the strength and the encouragement and the peace that God knows the beginning from the end. And he's working everything, everything, according to the counsel of his will. Now, I know what you're thinking. I've been there many a times. Pastor, I still need to know God's will for my decision. I still need to know how to navigate this health trial. I still need to know what is going to go on in my job circumstance. I need to know God's will in this. Let me encourage you with two thoughts concerning that. First, from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may know what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You want to know the will of God? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Commit with all of your heart to know him through his word. To submit to that word. To be transformed and renewed by it. Obviously, as the Proverbs will tell us, there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. And by all means, seek that. But at the end of the day, beloved, when you pray, your will be done on earth that is is in heaven. Make a decision and run with it. Why? Because the Lord is sovereign. And his will of decree will be accomplished. What's more? For those of you who know him as your intimate father, that will is always good for you. Always. No matter what. No matter the gravest circumstance you could ever imagine. You know the verse. Everything's working together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. 
And that's encouragement and strength in prayer. That's a prayer that's first, first committed to approach him for his glory. Now, let me finish with one more challenge. Perhaps in a room this size. There are some here who do not understand the intimacy of a prayer which states our Father. If there is anyone here in that state, dear friend, I plead with you. Why would you live in that illegitimate state? Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lay your sin of unbelief at the foot of the cross. Come and receive for the first time an adoption reserved in heaven. Come for the first time as his child and glorify him with this prayer. Our Father who is in heaven Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth. As it is in heaven. Bow with me in prayer. Lord Jesus we stand in awe of your word which is sufficient for all things. We come to you, O mighty Father, as a child would, with reverence, with intimacy, with respect. O Lord, would you cause your name to be treated as holy? Would you vindicate your name? Oh God, we look forward to the kingdom to come and we pray that we would live in the kingdom that is hand, spiritually speaking. And oh Lord, we rest in the reality that your will will be accomplished. We thank you We worship you and we glorify you. In the name of our precious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray.